Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm KSL's Debbie Worthen. Four years ago, my son Asher was diagnosed with autism. After getting our footing, we decided it was time to celebrate the news with all of you. And that's how Celebrating the Spectrum was born. Each week, we consult with the experts and others who are learning to navigate life with a loved one who has special needs. This is a place where we find hope, look for solutions, and connect with those working to create a better world of inclusion. Hey, thanks for joining us for today's episode of Celebrating the Spectrum. I wanted to share what I found to be an incredible resource for parents here when it comes to navigating the IEP. If you haven't gotten to the IEP, we'll get to that in just a second. When we first started experiencing those meetings, I went on a deep dive onto the internet looking for help. And that's when I found the Utah Parent Center. UPC is a nonprofit organization that serves families impacted by disabilities. The mission is to help parents help their children, youth, and young adults with all disabilities to live included, productive lives as members of the community. They accomplish that by providing accurate information, empathetic peer support, valuable training, and effective advocacy based on the concept of parents helping parents. One of those parents is Jenny Dobb. So Jenny Dobb has many roles at UPC, two decades of working in the disability community and raising a 22-year-old son with multiple disabilities, have taught her the critical need for support services and advocacy for families impacted by disabilities. Jenny describes herself as a philanthropist heart and enjoys trying to make a difference in the lives of others through connection and identifying available resources. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about to talk about something I love so much. Oh, I love it. I also noticed in your bio that in your free time, you know, you enjoy the beach and chocolate. And I was just thinking, okay, mom of a child with disabilities, when do you actually find that free time? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Those moments are... Yeah, Luckily for me, he's a little older, so those we, we do have a few minutes away sometimes. It's right, great. once in a while. All right, I'm going to dig right into the IEP. So let me tell you what happened to me. So when we started, when our son transitioned to public school, we had our first IEP meeting. I'd never heard of an IEP meeting. So tell us, what does IEP stand for? And kind of tell me what parents need to know about this process and what it means and what the legal implications are. Yeah, for sure. So yes, I have a son who's 22. And our road on this um, special education journey started when he was in early intervention. And it progressed. And so each of these stages of life through the IEP can be challenging for families as they try to understand that. So for some people, the diagnosis is going to come later. For some people like me, it's from the get go, and you're in early intervention, and then you transition to a preschool environment through the district. um, And then you're in kindergarten, and you're just terrified as a mom to leave preschool. And so for that first, you know, official elementary school aged IEP, it can be a big deal. So an IEP stands for an individualized education program. But I also wanted to make sure your listeners were available of other resources as well. So an an IEP is um, the most robust form of support that a child or youth can have for their special education services. And I think of it as a vehicle. It's a way for everyone to be on the same page, the teacher, the administrator, the parent, the student. It spells out all of the accommodations that the child will have. It lists goals that the child will accomplish in their uh, throughout their school year. And it basically holds everyone accountable. It, it comes to us through through IDEA, which is the federal vehicle for special education. It's the modality that we use, and it's a law. And so it all it keeps people honest. It helps us all obey the law. Um, these children have rights, and they have um, 
services that are available to them, and it gives parents a way to advocate for their children and to access them. But in addition to the IEP, you know, that might not be appropriate. Um, I just wanted to make sure people knew about the two other less restrictive um, forms of support because I have four children. I've had three children on a 504 plan, a section 504 plan. Um, One of those children was also on an RTI plan. And then one of those children was on an IEP plan. So the 504, yeah, I started hearing that number thrown around. I'm like, what the heck is a 504? I mean, what is it? Well, let's start with the very basics. So my daughter had trouble reading when she got into school. It just didn't click for her. And so she was identified as as an individual that might need some extra support with reading. And so she had an RTI plan, which is a response to intervention plan. And so she was able to get into some reading support groups. And, you know, she by the time she left fifth grade, she was out of that support group. So that's like the bare minimum. Usually it's used for like reading and math. The next step is Section 504, uh, Section 504. For, um, plan. And so um, because of their mental health with um, anxiety and depression, things are really overwhelming to them. And then you add their ADHD on top of that, and sometimes they can really get behind. So a Section 504 plan um, will bring in the accommodation piece. And so I just barely put one into place for, for one of my for one of my kids. And um, I just had to talk to the principal or the the um, the assistant principal and talk about the this the issues that my child was facing. Um, I brought in some doctor's documentation that that she's being treated for these specific issues. And then we were able to design this 504 plan that she can use in her classes to help her stay on top of her work, to get a copy of like the teacher's lecture notes, to make sure she can take her tests in a quiet place, those types of things. And then the next step is the IEP. And all of those options available in the other two plans or programs are available in an IEP. It's just more robust and it, it, it involves um, more goal setting, um, more accommodations. Um, it's usually for people with more significant disabilities. So, so the, I just want to make sure everyone knows about No, no that's great because it, this is when you first start going down this road, you're just hearing all of these terms, all of these acronyms, and it is so daunting. I'm sure you remember this from years ago. And yes. now, you know, you're such yes. an expert and such a resource for these parents, which is part of Utah Parent Center's entire objective, which is fantastic to have. So um, I remember when we first were talking about transferring him to public school, like, well, we need to know if he is eligible for an IEP. And that kind of sounded you know, like the way it was said was kind of like, well, he might not even be eligible. And I was like, what? Right. Well, you know, so and so, and I know like now I know I you know, you've you learn a lot <laughs> each time. How does a child become eligible for, you know, these legally entitled services that they can get? Right. So there is a process. So that first process is the referral. So either you or maybe the school recognizes that there might be some challenges there. And so there's a referral made. So if it's a parent that's wanting to put this in place, I would email my principal at the school, usually at the um, elementary level, it's the principal and junior high and high school, it's typically an assistant principal, they call themselves the LEA, which is the local education uh, person who's responsible responsible for IEPs at okay. school. So you email them and you make a re- request in writing and you're going to explain your concerns and share your information. Maybe you'll um, include like evaluations or other things that you've received from your neuropsych evaluations or a doctor, um, maybe your physical therapy report, whatever it is. And it's usually best to like summarize what's going on mm-hmm. um, just so that they can kind of get a grasp of it. So once you've you've emailed the, the principal, then they'll review all the information and then they'll probably say, okay, and it's their decision to, of whether or not they want to move forward. Um, they'll say, okay, let's do some evaluation and find out um, what's really going on here because it's, you can't just jump to an IEP, you actually have to have data that supports it. You have to say, okay, ooh, we're really struggling here in math. We're really struggling here in speech. We're really struggling here in social skills. So they have, after that, they have 45 days to complete the evaluation. Once they say, yes, let's move forward. And then based upon the evaluation and that that data, then you'll be able to determine that eligibility and saying, yes, they fall under um, qualified for for an IEP because of, you know, an other health impairment, or maybe they're visually impaired, mm-hmm. maybe there's a hearing loss. So there's 13 different areas where a child could qualify. 
However, if you're meeting with your doctor, there's hundreds of areas where mm -hmm. they could qualify. Yeah. So there's um, only 13 that they list on the IEP, but they can make it fit based upon what's going on with your child. So, and okay, once, so let me stop you for just yeah. a second. What if you yeah. request that and the school says no? Yes, and that could happen. Um, I don't see it very often, but if you don't agree or if the, parent, if the principal comes back and says, you know what, I just don't really see that there's a need here, you can request an independent evaluation assessment with the district. And now is that so someone from the district that does that or is it an outside source? Um, I would have to check to see um, who the district lists because I know that there's options okay. of who you can get to do. And I think it depends upon, you know, what situation is happening there. Um, but if you ha if you are in this situation, please call the Utah Parent Center right. and we can walk you through that. Um, but you have two options. You can either do that and go through the district and request the independent evaluation assessment. And they are required to help you with that. Or you can go, like if I had a child who I suspected was on the autism spectrum, I could get my own neuropsych evaluation and then provide that to the school as well. And the so districts, yeah, the districts legally have to take that into consideration. Is that correct? Right. Okay. I mean, it's all about data. Mm -hmm. Everything is driven by the data. So if you have data that shows that there are significant struggles where the child or the youth needs that individualized education and support. I mean, most districts recognize, I mean, most right. general ed teachers recognize there's something going on there. No, I'd love you to talk about the data because as parents, we're really emotionally invested in all of this. <laughs> and right. and the schools are not emotionally invested. They're, I think, you know, from their perspective, they're looking at, this is going to be a, a huge commitment and we're going to be taking this on. So obviously there has to be that that line where those two come together and cross. And I, I love the data piece. And I think it was my advocate at the Utah Parent Center who said, you know, as the parent, you need to be keeping records of everything. Keep a paper trail. Yes. That's that's your responsibility. And it can't just be like, oh, we had this conversation. I don't remember when it was. It's like, no, you need to be keeping track of this every step of the way because it is that data that ultimately will will support you know, what, what your requests are and what legally you can get. Right. And there's a couple of, um, like funky acronyms I want to introduce to mm -hmm. families in case they're new to this road. But the first one is FAPE and it's free and appropriate public education and school districts are required to provide that even to students with disabilities. Okay. Say that again, and free. It's, uh, it's FAPE, F-A-P-E, and it's free and appropriate public education. Okay. So whether that's speech services, um, help with math, um, occupational therapy, physical therapy, uh, maybe a technological device that supports them in their efforts at school, it's required by the district to support these these kids with disabilities. And is that and a federal? An environment where they can learn. Right. Is that federal or is that state? Yeah, state is mm -hmm. No, it's federal. It's part of, of IDEA and, okay. and providing these resources to families. Yeah. Okay. And then did so you have another you, one you were thinking about, another acronym? Um, yes. And it goes along with FAPE, but it, I guess it's not really an acronym, acronym but it's the um, procedural safeguards. So once you have identified that this child needs an IEP and you mentioned, you know, the school might not really want to mm -hmm. provide what's needed, these procedural safeguards that you'll receive as a parent, and they're available on our website or on the Utah State Board of Education's website. It's a booklet, and you'll get them at every IEP meeting. And it's a lot of legal ease, and so we'll help you understand it. But it basically outlines from beginning to end the process for IEPs, your child's rights, your rights, um, what you can do to work with the school. And I just wanted to talk about just a couple of them and also whether or not your child's in a district or a charter. So if your child goes, like my children are in Davis School District, so I do everything with the Davis School District. Mm -hmm. If I went to a charter school in the Davis District, that charter is its own district. So I can't okay. go to the Davis School District special education director and navigate my child with them. I have to work with my charter. So what do so you think is make... better? I mean, is every situation unique or do you have you found that there's one that's better than the other? You know, we serve charters and we serve districts. And so it just depends upon the needs of your child. Mm -hmm. For some people, they didn't feel like they were able to get um, the right services that they needed, or maybe they wanted a greater exposure um, to a bigger population. Maybe the charter was too small, mm -hmm. but other people thrive in charters and charters have a lot of things going for them. So it totally is a parent decision and what's based on your child and whether or not you're able to work with the charter or work with the district. Some people are more successful 
in a different environment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. So working with the district and working with that team, I mean, it was really mm-hmm. important to me to, I, w- I would love to have the next six years collaborating with this team, not fighting, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, or, or quote advocating, which sometimes feels like fighting. Um, yeah. Do you have advice for parents when they're going into these IEP meetings, just as far as demeanor and input and just kind of setting the tone? I do. So we have a great resource. If you go on our website under resources and handbooks, there's, or you can even go under our website resources and then IEP, you'll find a link to a handbook. And this handbook talks about how to be a partner in the IEP process, because everybody at the end of the day wants what's best for this child. We all want them to succeed and be successful in their own sphere of what's capable, what's appropriate for them. And so as you do more research and learn how to advocate for your child, you're, you're your child's best advocate. Mm -hmm. And so I think I look back at my child's first IEP meeting for kindergarten and I was just like, okay, tell me all the things, tell me what to do. But then as I left, so so true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As I left high school with my final IEP meeting, I knew what I knew and I Mm -hmm. knew what was required of the district and I was able to advocate for him better. And so uh, one thing that we hear from parents a lot is I wish I would have known about the Utah Parent Center earlier. Yeah. I didn't even know all the things I didn't know. Yeah. And so that's why we're here. If you are getting ready for your IEP meeting, we have parent consultants who can help you with one-on-one consultations that will go through it with you, kind of give you language to use, maybe look at the situation. Oh, have you ever thought about this? Mm-hmm. Or, oh, this the school is really doing a great job here. So the more that you can communicate, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, we're mama bears. We want to... Mm-hmm go in there and we want to fight for our kiddo and we want to make sure they have all the things. And that's great. And that's our job. And that's what we're supposed to do. But I think when we can do it in a spirit of partnership and realize the district is not our enemy, the school is not our enemy, the teacher is not our, our enemy. I mean, yes, there can be complications where th- where people don't see eye to eye. But if we go in there, guns blazing at first before anything's ever happened, um, it's not to our best interest. And so I think when we go in there with our um, issues and say, you know, I'm really worried about speech. I'm, I want to, I want to see what we can do to make progress here. And one other thing that I think is important is people kind of wait for the IEP meeting and that's where they want to have all the conversation and look at all the things, but if they can take a step back and do some of that pre-work before and have the conversations with the teachers, you know, get, get a report beforehand from the speech person, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really understand where your child is before the meeting and even be really contemplative about what goals you want to see for your child in the next year so that the school is not dictating just to you. Like they're going to go off of their data, Mm -hmm. but as the mom, you have a different child at home. Right. My son was a different child at home than he was at school. They mm-hmm. didn't see all the behavior we had at home. And so I wanted to bring together, I wanted to bring all of these pieces about behavior to the IEP meeting. And they're like, well, we don't even see that. And I said, okay, well, we're seeing that. So what can we do at school to support at home, mm-hmm. um, but do it in an education environment and link it to their core curriculum? Because the IEP goals need to be linked to the core curriculum. No, that that's so true. And, you know, I kind of liken it to parents teacher conference with a neurotypical kid because I remember mm-hmm. my, my older daughter she's 17 now I went to her first grade parent teacher conference and I'm just assuming everything's been going great and right. we get there and it's like oh she's struggling this she's not doing this this is going it's like oh why am I just hearing about this you know at parent teacher conference but that really opened my eyes and that I feel like the the program that we have in place with my son Asher now is so valuable because I'm getting daily updates on how things are going, what triggers we've had. And I think it helps all of us. It helps us look for consistencies. It helps me look for things that, oh, you know, because it is true. You're like, you're not seeing certain behaviors at home that they see at school. How can we help mm-hmm. that at home? How can we all be consistent? And then when you get to that IEP, it doesn't need to be a two and a half hour, you know, hash session. It's like, oh, we're all coming in with this data. And all kind of seeing. And then it's like, all right, as the parent, that prepares me better because I don't know what we do with that data, but at least I have it. And then when we start talking about it, you know, it doesn't feel like we're starting at ground zero every time. Right. 
I think another important thing is to ask questions because, you know, FAPE is a new term or IEP is a new term, um, OT, PT, like you don't know what all of these things are. Mm -hmm. So ask questions. It's okay for you to do so if they bring a goal to the table and you don't really understand it. Like one of the ones for me that I always laughed about is Jackson will do this 20% of the time Mm -hmm. with five different opportunities, you know, (laughs) and I was just like, this doesn't really make sense to me. Can you explain to me how this is really meeting the goal? And so I knew that they had to tie everything back to data and matrix. And so once I understood that, but I also understood the process Mm -hmm. to which they were going to use to acquire that data, it helped me understand the goal better. Yeah, no, that's incredible. Yeah, I think two other things parents need to know about IEP meetings is that it's great for it to be student led. So if you have a little second grader, it's hard for your student to lead the meeting. They're just sitting in this room with all of these adults, right? But, you know, as they get into sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, especially ninth through high school, um, it's really important that the student be involved. Um, You know, some people want this team to really know them because, like, let's take the assistant Mm -hmm. principal. He might only see this child once a year at the IEP meeting. And so some people even bring a little video or a little PowerPoint or a little poster board about their child, who they are, teaching this team what their likes are, what their dislikes are, because they only see this kiddo for a couple hours at school every day, where there's a whole other side to the student. Um, So that's a a good thing is to teach your child to lead the IEP and to learn how to be a self-advocate. Well, I was just going to say, that's amazing. um, That's empowering them for the self-advocacy later in life. Yeah, like my son has a chromosome duplication on top of autism and his DNA is not going to be corrected. You know, like there's he's going to have this journey for the rest of his life and he needs to learn how to navigate it because he's now 22 and I'm not going to be here forever. So the more skills I can give him the earlier on in life, the more he's going to feel empowered and be able to be his own self-advocate. And then the other piece that kind of parents get hung up on is is another acronym. It's called LRE, Least Restrictive Environment. And some parents really want their child with Down syndrome or their child with autism who has significant needs to be in a general education typical classroom. And that's great. And they have their desires to do that. But it's really hard for a school um, to provide all of the services that they need in a a general ed classroom for the entire day versus a small group classroom. So I think parents also need to understand the balance. Yes, we want inclusion. We're all about inclusion. And we want these services to be provided for our, our kids in the least restrictive environment. But it goes both ways. If a child with significant disabilities is in a general education classroom all day, that's that's very restrictive to them because they're not getting the individual support that they need. But if a child who's higher functioning is pulled out into like a resource mm-hmm. environment for the entire day, that's very restrictive to them mm-hmm. because they need more general education support. So I want parents to try to be really contemplative about the least restrictive environment. What is truly the best for your child? Yes, we want social, but yes, we also need individualized instruction. And where can that take place in the best setting that's best for our child. Not, I always have to think, I know what I want, but what is best for Jackson? Oh, I know. That's always the big conundrum for Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Right. I think I know what I want for him. Is that what he wants? Is that where he'll thrive? And, and I think sometimes when the, the conflict hits is when I know about least restrictive environment or education, environment or education. Which one? Um, Least restrictive environment. Environment. Okay. I know about that and I want inclusion but maybe I want more inclusion than than the school can offer. I mean, is that kind of where you see that, you know, that disconnect at times or, you know, how do you how do you get to those terms where it's like, OK, I want my child to be in the typical classroom for two hours a day, you know, and the mm-hmm. other time of day he can be in resource or speech or all of those things. But the school is saying, well, you know, no, he can only be in there 15 minutes a day. I mean, these are just these are just random examples. But, you know, when you're at that point, how do you how do you come to terms? Is it it that data once again where it's like, well, we're tracking, you know, this and this and this during these hours at this point, your child can't handle that. Or, you know, how, how do you go about that? Right. And that's where that communication piece comes in is, you know, this is what I'm seeing. Um, My child doesn't seem happy in the resource environment all day. 
um, what can we do to bring in some more general education time? Can we add in music? Can we add in art? Can we mm -hmm. add in PE? Can we even add in reading where they're reading with a peer tutor rather than reading with the resource adult um, teacher? So it just depends upon that child's need with reading and if that would be accommodated or not. But I think it's definitely about communication and trying our best to see what will work in the general education environment. I remember one scenario where um, a child was brought into general education. They were doing well. Um, they seemed to be following along with the teacher. The, um, when she said, you know, turn to page 22 in your workbook, the child next to him helped find page 22. But when an aide was brought in who was an adult, that was more restrictive for that child because the child shut down because he was now different and he, are, oh, he had this aid. But for other children, they want the aid there mm -hmm. for support. Maybe they need them for learning. Mm -hmm. So there's not a one size fits all with an IEP. What will work for your child might not work for my child. And that's where that communication piece with the school and also the data. What is the data showing? Is the child able to do it in a general education classroom? Mm -hmm. Or is he getting better results with um, resource, but maybe he's not as happy there? Right. So maybe there's a give and take. Maybe there's... Um, options you need to, or decisions you need to make as a parent um, and tr to try to get the best of both worlds. Right, right. Okay, Jenny Dopp is with the Utah Parent Center. We're going to take a very quick break. Uh, we're going to talk more about IEPs when we come back, including who is the leader of the team and what what right does the parent have as a voice on that team? So some questions that we'll have her answer when we come back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. We are back here on Celebrating the Spectrum with Jenny Dobbs. She is from the Utah Parent Center. If you live in Utah and you have a child with special needs, there's a chance you've heard of the Utah Parent Center. I would encourage you to go to their website and check it out because I, I started looking at the Utah Parent Center website really when I was in a, a moment of crisis. I did not know what to do. I didn't know how to navigate an IEP meeting. I just knew things weren't going well for me, and, but that's that's pretty much where it ended. When I called the Utah Parent Center, like, okay, what's your name? What's your child's name. And Jenny, we talked about this before the show, but when I called and left that message, I truly thought no one is ever going to call me back. <laughs> so when I got that call back, like, okay, so your son's Asher, when's his birthday? What district is he in? What's his diagnosis? And I I was flabbergasted. I mean, I felt like this was something, especially in the world of special needs and autism, nothing is free. You know, so this is a conversation that I felt would have cost me a few hundred dollars or even up to a thousand dollars to get some advocacy help as we were going in. So as we've uh, kind of wrapped up that first year of IEP meetings and, and placement hearings and all of that stuff, I was talking to a friend of mine who's on one of the, the board of education uh, for one of the districts here. And he said, when you're in those IEP meetings, you're not servant, you're master as the parent. So if they're just saying a bunch of stuff that you flat out don't agree with and they're not going to help you and you feel like your your child is not going to get what's best for them, um, he he had some advice for me. Now, what what is your experience with that? You know, because sometimes like we are going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to keep him here. You know, if you don't agree with their recommendations or their decisions as the parent, what then what happens at that point? 
Right, for sure. Let me back up for just a little bit. I want parents to make sure that they know that we serve any disability and across the lifespan of the child. So whether it's autism or maybe you have um, some behavioral issues that will come into play for Mm -hmm. you later, and we have resources for you. Um, Jumping back to the IEP meeting, the very first tool that parents have when they get into these types of situations where things are a little more challenging is that procedural safeguard that we talked about earlier. Okay. And they need to know that that there's no change of placement without written notification. So parents need to be notified if something is going to change. Parents also have access to records. If the parent, if the school is claiming that they have all of this data, but you haven't seen it, you are entitled to see everything that they have so that you can make sense of what might be best for your child. And it is important to know that you are your child's biggest advocate and best Mm -hmm. advocate. And also that written um, notification applies to meetings and also evaluations. So if you don't agree with something and like it's been a couple of years since the IQ was done Mm -hmm. or maybe a speech evaluation because they want to cut back on speech, there needs to be an evaluation to, to dictate that change. There needs to be data to support what the school wants to do. They can't just say, oh, you know, he seems like he's doing great. We're going to stop speech services. There's got to be that data to support it. And then also, if you get into that sticky situation where they say they're doing this, but you think this other thing needs to happen, mm-hmm. um, in that procedural safeguard, it outlines um, the process um, about how to how to go about taking care of that. And so there is, there is a, a form, or, or not a form, but a plan that mm-hmm. you should use. The very first thing you would want to do, let's, let's, Let's wait for a second. Let's go back to the IEP meeting. Okay. Let's say you're going through the IEP meeting and they say, this is what we're ha- what's happening and you don't agree. Um, that's not the end of the line. Okay. So what you'd want to do is express your concern and make sure that it's marked down in the anecdotal note. Okay. So the anecdotal note is that piece of paper that the principal or the assistant principal or somebody in the room is taking notes on the meeting. And if they aren't doing that in your meetings, you need to have that being done. Well, and I read and, somewhere and then, to always take your own notes, too. Yeah, you I, totally I don't can. do that. Yeah. But um, I my school's been very thorough with the notes. But OK, so, yes, when you're saying yeah. something that you you feel like, no, mm-hmm. I'm saying this for I'm not just like voicing this flippantly. Like I'm saying this because right. this is important to me. You need like, should you even say, can you make sure this is in the notes? Yes. In fact, I learned my lesson on this one because I thought that I had made a note that when, as we were talking about transition and graduation credits towards graduating, that they were being kept in the notes because I said, are we, is that in the notes? And I was just saying generally, Mm -hmm. and I thought that they were writing down actual credit for each class and they were just saying my general statement. So if you want something specific in the notes, you need to say, please add that statement to the notes. Oh, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that meeting, it should be you and, you know, your partner, or your spouse or whoever you want to be, to be there. Um, also related service providers. So my son always had speech services and occupational therapy services. So those individuals should be in the meeting. And if they're not, you, if they weren't, they always sent the report ahead of time. And I had always talked to them ahead of time. So nothing was new. And if there's an evaluation report that they're going to go over in the meeting, there needs to be somebody in the meeting that can explain that to you. It can't just be like a general educate general education teacher explaining, um, you know, this, um, sorry, this significant, um, like, uh, speech report. Right. Um, there also needs right, to because be, that stuff is confusing. Right, right. There also needs to be the special education teacher and a general education teacher and that administrator. So a lot of times a general education teacher might just say their part and then step out. If you're not okay with them stepping out, then they, they need to reschedule the meeting or they need to bring in a general another a general, general education teacher. All of your team should be present and you have the, the choice if you're okay for somebody to step out. But that was really typical with me where somebody would, it would do their part and then step out. Um, and then if I had a question, I could call them back in or I could choose to reschedule the meeting. Mm-hmm. But it is your meeting. It is your child's meeting and you're not at the mercy of the team. Um, everybody has a part to play and you should all be there to support um, the child. So at the end of this meeting, if you do not like what has happened, if you don't like the outcome of the meeting, you want to make sure it's noted in those anecdotal notes. Okay. And then you would also sign the IEP. Some people think, well, I'm not going to sign that because that means I'm agreeing to it. No, when you sign that, that just means that you were there 
you had a voice and you rep were represented. And then in the anecdotal notes, it will specify that you're going, the team is going to meet again to discuss this piece because okay. sometimes like another evaluation needs to take place, or maybe the team needs to regroup and do a little bit more homework and a, more assessments and more discussion. And, you know, sometimes you just can't solve the world's problems in a two hour meeting. Yeah. So, but then they'll get to a point where maybe you're still not seeing eye to eye. So there are different options. The very first thing you would want to do is talk to your special education teacher and, and see what you can do there. The next step would be to talk to your principal or your assistant principal, depending upon who was in that meeting. And then the last step is talking to your district special education director. If you just say, oh my gosh, I'm going to call the district, your district educate special education director is probably going to say, okay, well, have you... What have you already been able to communicate to the school? Yeah, it's kind of like chain of command, you know, even at at your job, like, okay, go to your direct report and then they go, you know, it's not just like I'm telling on you. I'm going to the superintendent. I mean, yeah, I I think that's good. Okay, and and then then what if they're like, um, Yeah. yeah, we can't we can't accommodate you. Right. So it's not that it's the the school's way or the highway, you know, it's there's there's still options in place. So then you would get into mediation with the school. And again, your procedural safeguards. This is a lot to remember. And no, it's a it lot is. Of legal but, but on the mediation, so to me, does that mean I have to hire a lawyer? You know, again, I'm not sure because I haven't been through it, okay. but we have people that have some of our parent consultants actually work with parents. Mm-hmm. So if you're contemplating this, call us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not attorneys, but we are parents who are trained in, in a lot of special education law. We go to the Utah State Board of Education's law conference every year. We're always doing in-service training and we go to a lot of these meetings with parents. And so we have a lot of skills that can help parents, but we are not attorneys. I want to make sure that's clear. Okay. But we go, you can go through that mediation process and then you can file as if that doesn't work, you can file a state complaint and then there's due process and then there would be civil action. But it's in the school district's best interest to work with you. And it's not like they don't want this child to receive to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times this is able to get resolved at the lowest level. Um, but there are instances where, you know, maybe a law is not being followed or maybe an IEP is not being followed and people are not seeing eye to eye. And so it's good to have conversations and make sure everybody's on the same page, but use the resources available to you through us, um, through the Disability Law Center. Um, There's people all over the state that want to help you. And there's legislation in place. Um, We have a whole module on our website under resources and advocacy that will teach you how to be an advocate, how to um, help your child learn to be a self-advocate because this is important stuff. And we want parents to feel successful and empowered, not adversarial because that's right. really hard and no, it is, heavy yeah. and yucky. But, you know, we we can do it through communication. No, that's so true. And and it is daunting. I mean, you, you're in a new world that you know nothing about. And yeah. at least for me, I felt like a kindergartner in a master's level college class at the beginning, you know, just not understanding right. any of the terms. And even, and I, th- I thought what was important, and this is where my Utah Parent Center advocate helped me just feel more, I guess, trust, was there were things we were changing in the IEP. It's like, okay, well, we are going to change his... Um, I can't remember the terminology, but it was like his core issue as autism instead of just like speech therapy or one of those things. And I was really hesitant to agree to that because I and so I said to the advocate, I was like, OK, well, what what does that imply? Does that imply, like, oh, you signed that his you know first priority is autism. So does that mean they could just move him out of the school? You know, but it was it was really helpful to have her there saying no, because when you're when you're signing something that has documentation and data, I feel like there was so much verbiage that I didn't understand the implications of, you know, so when they're, when they're putting this in, what, what does that imply? What actually does that mean? It sounds fine, but is it fine? You know, I think that's what became scary. And for me now, as I've gotten a couple years in now with my school, I feel like I trust them, (laughs) which, you know, but you don't, you don't know, you don't know that at first. And so I think that became pretty scary to me, too. Just, you know, what do those words actually imply? You're saying this, but what could that mean for me six months down the road? Right. Well, and I think that's important, too, because you bring up a good point about placement. You know, just because you have autism on your IEP or, you know, Down syndrome or something else, it doesn't automatically mean you're going to be in a certain classroom. Mm -hmm. It's all going to come back to the data and what's needed for the child, because I think a lot of parents think of IEP and just think, oh, this is one 
one size fits all, but it really is an individualized education program for your child. It's one of the most powerful tools and it's the cornerstone of what your child will need to have a successful education experience. It will dictate what classes they're going to be in, what teacher um, communication methods will be used, what technological uh, pieces can help supplement their education. It really is a ticket to success for them. Um, and we're so lucky to have this legislation and parents before us have fought hard for these kids to have this type of support in school. And so where, yes, it's, I think there's, it comes into like a stages of grief for parents mm -hmm. because you have this little baby and you have these hopes and dreams for this baby. And then you see that they're not meeting their developmental milestones. And you're like, oh, this is where we are, mm -hmm. you know, but you have to reframe it and you think, okay, but look at all we've, we've accomplished. Yes. Like where Jackson is today is 22. I never thought he would be there when we were fighting with the school. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. And I think one of the things that parents um, can bring that can bring parents hope is on the IEP to have the term the term we're using today is mm -hmm. called appropriately ambitious goals. Um, we want to push these kids. We want to have right. high expectations. We can't just say, oh, well, they have significant autism, so they're never going to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Jackson can do. Only right. Jackson will be able to determine that. I don't get to determine that for him. My job and my role as a mom is to help give him the tools and every access to those tools to help him be successful. And then let's see what happens. And he has thrived in every opportunity. Um, there's been times where he was doing great in elementary school. We got into junior high and I was getting phone calls from the school every day. Um, puberty was occurring. Mental health was peaking. First of all, um, how scary is it to send your special needs child <laughs> to junior high? I like I'm already dreading that day. I know. I was laying in the hospital with him and I knew he had some brain structure anomalies at birth. And I laid there in the hospital after an emergency C-section thinking, what are we going to do about junior high? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> no, well, it's not because, yeah. you know, I have two I have two <laughs> older daughters, totally neurotypical. With both of them, I was nervous. This is a whole yeah. new level. But that that is yeah. funny. You're like, he's, he's two yeah. days old and you're like, what are we going to do about junior high? <laughs> yeah. But where we had never had like a behavioral piece in elementary before, right. now we were running down the hallway mm -hmm. needing to be restrained, not restrained in like a harsh, yeah. you know, stopped. way. But Being stopped. Yeah, for, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. to, to be kept safe. And so we had to put a behavioral intervention plan in place. And this was a new layer in the IEP, mm -hmm. but it gave the school tools. It gave me expectations. It set expectations for Jackson and gave him the tools. And so each layer of support, yes, there's this level of grief and acceptance that you have to have as a parent, but you also get to look at it as, okay, this is where we are. Now, how can we get to the next step? Mm -hmm. And so um, these the tools in the IEP, when you structure the goals and when you bring your whole self to the table in the best interest of your child and each member of that IEP team does the same thing, it really turns into a beautiful relationship between you and the school trying to help this, this child succeed. And if you don't feel like that's happening, if you feel like, you know what, this teacher is just not seeing Jackson for who he is, mm -hmm. and I feel like there's some animosity there, you know, you need to address it and contact the the teacher and say, this is what I'm feeling. Or if you don't feel like you can do that, go to the principal and say, you know, what other placement options are available? Right. Um, what other supports can we put in place? Call mm -hmm. the Utah Parent Center. Right. Um, because maybe there's things that we've done for the past 40 years, because we've been around yeah, for 40 that's incredible. years in the center, mm -hmm. that you might not have thought of. And right. it's just like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, the other piece that I wanted to bring up, because I know we're getting short on time, is the importance of the IEP when you get to a transition age. So transition starts when a child is 14 and goes all the way up until they're like 22, 23. And it's this whole section of life where you're preparing that child for adulthood. Mm -hmm. And the Utah Parent Center has a really important tool. If you go under our res resources and then transition, you'll see buttons or like, um, t like um, clickable tabs yeah. for each age group, whether or not you're transitioning for out of early intervention into preschool or kindergarten, all the way up to this, this adult age 
of Transition University. So it's a new program that we've been putting together for the past three years, and it goes through every aspect of life that your child will need to transition to adulthood. And the IEP can support that. So we'll cover topics like employment, education, life skills. And you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with junior high, mm-hmm. ninth grade, or high school? But what do you do? Like when you're a sixth grader or a seventh or eighth grader, you don't even have it on your radar that one day that school bus is going to stop coming. Mm-hmm. So what what's your plan? Like mm-hmm. we need to get ahead of this and make sure that the school is our, t- our teammate on this because they have incredible resources at their at their fingertips. And if you don't tap into them as a parent, it's only going to make your job harder because you're right. going to have to figure that out for yourself when your child either graduates or finishes their post high program. So we'll talk to you all about how to track their graduation credits, um, if they're going to work towards a regular diploma, if you think that they need to work towards a certificate, or maybe still get that diploma but finish the district's post-high program. Um, the data will all determine the placement for your child on that, but you need to be aware of your options so that you're not being dictated to on, on what is best for your child. Um, also learning to involve other people in the IEP team meeting. For instance, I would invite Jackson's vocational rehabilitation counselor to the IEP meeting so that the school could make sure we have assessments done on his education goals. Um, When he was leaving the high school, that he was getting to have educate or employment opportunities out in the community, that he was learning to ride the the UTA, Mm -hmm. um, that he was having experiences stocking the shelves at Smith's or working at McDonald's. These are all things that can be written into the IEP. And also- That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so we have videos and links and resources all in this transition university module. It's usually a um, a month long class where you would come um, through Zoom and take our classes every Tuesday night. But we've broken down each module and put it on our website so that you can have the resources right at your fingertips. So if you're going to go into your transition IEP meeting as a sophomore with your sophomore in high school, you'll want to listen to that IEP transition video before you go so that you can understand all of the lingo. I mean, people don't know what VR is, vocational rehabilitation. People don't know what pre-ETS is, which is pre-employment training skills. And these are all terms your IEP team is going to be using as a high school student or junior high school student, but you're not going to be familiar with it because you've never worked with these agencies. Right, before. right. So anyway, I could talk about no, this all no, day. That's the, passion, thing, that, the thing. That's the thing. That's so crazy. So, so looking back, what do you wish you would have known? You know, your, your son's yeah. 22 now. You've been through all of these different scenarios. I'm sure you've had the times where you've walked out of those meetings so frustrated. You've had the times where you've walked out and thought this has been a success. What do you wish someone would have said to you when you were starting down this path? Yeah, the first thing because of Jackson's cognitive abilities and that he has a foot in both worlds, general education world and also the special education world. I wish I would have understood better how to track his graduation credits. Okay. Um, if they said, okay, we're just giving him partial credit for this class, they still all add up to a total graduation requirement for our district. And so I needed to, even though I thought I was tracking those, Mm -hmm. I needed to be, I needed to even do a better job of tracking the credits and make sure to make sure his post high education plan that we had for him that matched the data was really possible for him. And I could only do that if I worked with the school really closely through the IEP team and really tracked that. Because if you could, I, this is going to sound silly, but people accidentally graduate. No, that doesn't sound um, silly at all. Yeah. And I yeah. think what you're saying is don't take anything for granted. You got to be super right. thorough because if, if you don't know for a fact it's happening, it might not be happening. Right. And some people are thrilled. They want their child to graduate. Their child wants to graduate. And that's great. But you just need to be aware. What is it that's best for your child? Mm -hmm. What does the data show? And where is your child going to be most successful? Um, For some people, going to a post-high environment with the district until they're 22 would be restrictive and they would hate every moment Mm -hmm. of it. So you have to do what's best for your child. Right. And that's one thing. The other thing that I wish I would have known about earlier is vocational rehabilitation and those pre-employment training skills. I just thought it was this nice thing that they were doing for Jackson to get him out in the community. I didn't understand there were employment goals attached to it. And so if we could understand as parents 
um, if we could understand those assessments better mm -hmm. and also make sure those employment assessments are taking place, um, you know, that they talk to Jackson and they find out, okay, what is it that you want to do? Are you really interested in computers? Do mm -hmm. you like coding or do you like food service? Do you like um, sports? You know, mm -hmm. we have one individual that I know of who has Down syndrome that works with the University of Utah because they love sports and they were able to get connected with an employment opportunity at the University of Utah with sports. I mean, how amazing is that? So when you bring vocational rehabilitation into the picture with the IEP, it just opens a lot of doors for your child or for your youth. Also, um, understanding what DSPD is. It's the Division of Services for People with Disabilities. Um, Jackson's been on the Medicaid waiting list for services since he was about 13 or 14, and he's still sitting on that waiting list because we're waiting for the Utah legislature to appropriate more money for that waiting list for services for these kids. So like, so should I be doing that child, now? Getting my son on that waiting list now? Yeah, for sure. Like okay. if you're, if you feel like your child needs support and services, or if you feel like they're going to live with you forever, or if you feel like you need respite care, maybe you're going to need help with transportation. Maybe you'll need nursing services. And mm -hmm. um, what you would want to do is just go on the DSPD website and click on the intake button and you'll just fill out a needs assessment and they'll, you know, let you know where you fall on the, the waiting list. There's, there's a lot of people that like Jackson that are a little bit higher functioning. And so they're not going to get funded. Um, you, you get off of the waiting list based upon how long you've been on the waiting list and the significant severity of your needs. Oh my goodness. And so because he's higher functioning, he's probably not going to get funded for a while. Um, but this year the legislature appropriated more money and so about 400 people were brought off of that waiting oh, that's list. That's so cool. But there's other people sitting on the list for years and years. Oh, so yeah, gosh. there's things like that. But if you have DSPD services and you're sitting on the waiting list, there's one-time pools of money that you can get to help your child with their with their needs. So the Utah Parent Center can tell you all about all of oh, these things. It's an amazing um, resource, isn't it? Is it so I rewarding know. doing this work? You know, it is. It's, it. you know, working for a nonprofit, it's about mission. Um, none of us are in it for the money. Um, we <laughs> love what we do. Um, and people don't realize that we're there. And really, we can help one in six children across Utah, because that's how many people are impacted by disabilities. When I would go out and do marketing and outreach, people would think, well, I don't really have anyone in my family that has a disability. But when you talk about the um, the prevalence of mental health with de depression and anxiety and ADHD, asthma, you know, diabetes, all of, it, yeah. all of these mm -hmm. things qualify. And, you know, a lot of those things would fall under accommodations for like a Section 504 or RTI, even if they don't need an IEP. So we have services for you. Basically call us, let us know the age of your child, where you are in the state. We have a lot of consultants who, who work specifically with certain districts. Right. And if we don't have a consultant for your district, then we have statewide consultants that can help you. Jenny Dopp. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. <laughs> what an incredible resource. And I'm glad you pointed it out that it's not just autism. It's not just Down syndrome. There's just this giant umbrella. And I would encourage parents because I did this myself. You know, you're down that rabbit hole online of Google. <laughs> just call yeah. Utah Parent Center and, and see see what resources are available. I love you're talking about this stuff that comes in the late teen years and heading into adulthood. You know, I'm not even there yet mentally, but mm -hmm. the resources are. The resources yep. are there, and we live in an incredible time where the resources are available. It's just a matter of knowing what they are, finding them, and accessing them. Yes, for sure. And if we don't have the resource, we're partners with so many agencies in the state and so well-known, whether it's the U or Shriners, you know, or the Disability Law Center, whoever ever it is, we can point you in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And Celebrating the Spectrum is a KSL podcast. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.